everything that's gone on so far has confirmed to me that we're on the right track with what we're going to talk about tonight. The songs, the offering message. Um, and, and I'm stepping out on a limb because in my vast experience of preaching, which has been about a year, um, this is the first time I'm, I'm looking into something that's going to probably be a, a multi, a multi, uh, message, uh, topic. So we're going to get started tonight. And we're going to actually start in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> not too long ago, I was reading in 1 Samuel. And before I begin, let's go back and let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your holy written word. It is precious to me. And without it, Father, so thankful that we have it. So thankful that as we read your word, we hear your voice. We become acquainted with your voice. We know you're speaking to us because every word in scriptures are written to us out of love from your heart as instruction, as edification, as encouragement. It is your love letter to us. I thank you for it tonight, Father. May, by, may my mouth be as the pen of a ready writer. And I ask you to, if there's anything I'm missing in the preparation, that you'll fill in the gaps, Father. Thank you for it. May this be good bread that we eat tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so as I started to say recently, I've been, I was reading in 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is a, a lot of 1 Samuel where we read about um, the course of King David's life how he became anointed to be king over Israel and the challenges he had leading up to that and even while he was king. And uh, right about um, chapter 27, up till, up till then, uh, David has been pursued by Saul. And Saul, with whatever mental health issues Saul was dealing with, he would go after David, and then when he would see that David had the chance to kill him, but he didn't, because David said, I'll not touch the Lord's anointed. Um, then Saul would repent and say, I've been wrong. I sinned. I'm sorry, my son. Come back. And then he would turn around and in the next breath, he's hunting down David again to try to take his life. And this happened over and over again. Until finally, uh, David thought to himself, and I didn't give you this, Jerry so don't worry about it. This is background as far as the scriptures. But in, in chapter uh, 27 of 1 Samuel, um, David kept thinking to himself, am I too hot? Because it's sounding a little ringy or it's sounding... Oh, sorry. How's this? I have to lean down because I'm reading. Um, Someday Saul is going to get me, is what David said. The best thing I can do is escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me in, Isra in Israelite territory and I will be safe. So David and his 600 men... They went into the Philistine territory and they allied, uh, allied themselves with Achish, Achish, I think I'm saying that right, son of Maok, the king of Gath. And um, David became really valued by Achish and uh, he served him and he was faithful to him 
um, just in order to stay out of the hands of Saul, who was trying to hunt him down and take his life. And it happened that um, Achish was going to be going to war against the Israelites, and he even said to David, now, you know, you're going to be required to fight for our side. And David's like, yeah, I'm down with that. That's okay. I'll do that. But when, I think we're in 29, um, about the time that Achish's other, um, the Philistines came in and saw that David and his men were going to be fighting as well, they became angry, <clears throat> excuse me, because he said, what are you doing having this Israelite fight with us against the Israelites? Don't you know that he's, and I'm, I'm wildly paraphrasing here, don't you know that he could turn against us and he could kill us and then take our heads back to Israel to gain favor there? And, he, and they even said, um, haven't you heard the, that, the Isra- that the women of Israel sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousand. And so Achish knew, okay, I can't have David with me, otherwise this is not going to work. So, David, I love you, man, and you haven't done anything wrong, and I'm really sorry you have to say this, but you can't go with us into this battle. David seemed to be somewhat offended by that, but he said, okay. And he and his 600 men went back to where they had established their community, and that was in Ziklag. And all of that was to get us back to Ziklag. Okay? So um, when David and his men returned to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire. And their wives and their sons had been taken captive. So you can imagine they get back. They're by themselves. They know that the people they've been with for a while are off fighting war. But they go home and it's like, what happened to our lives? What happened to our homes? Where are our wives and children? Needless to say, these men were devastated and they were desperate. And they even got angry at David and talked about stoning him. Because when things go wrong, our natural human tendency is to place blame, isn't it? If something goes wrong, I want somebody to blame because I certainly don't want to be the one to blame. And I want, because that gives me a focus to, for justice or justification or whatever. And when that happens, when people blame us, our natural instinct then is to rise up and say, this isn't on me. I didn't do this. And then we're going to get into conflict. Can you see that? That you're blaming me, and I'm going to come back and say, no, it's not my fault, and then we're going to get into back and forth. And that's going to be highly unproductive. It certainly isn't going to get their wives and children back. It's not going to do any good. What David did next, though, made the difference between these men remaining, or excuse me, remaining victims or being victors. Verse 6 tells us, But David found strength in the Lord his God. He called for Abiathar, the priest, to bring the ephod. This was how they would approach God. The priest would bring the ephod. They would pray, and and this is how they would expect to get answers from God. David turned away from the chaos 
and noise of disaster and turned toward the only one who could help him. He inquired of the Lord and changed the destiny of his life and the lives of those who were with him. David asked the Lord in verse 6, Should I chase this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, Yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken. This isn't the only time in Scripture we read about David inquiring of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord a lot. We have all of the books, uh, every psalm that's in Psalms, 150 of them, right? In Psalms? Thank you. 150 psalms, and in each psalm, he's either praising God for who he is or what he's done, he's offering worship, or he's lamenting something he's going through, but always he turns it around to say, but I know you are faithful. I know you are true. Amen? It seems to me as if for David, it was natural to talk to God and to expect him to respond. And this started my mind considering our lives today and our nearly constant wonderings about what seem to be universal questions. Why am I here? What does God want from me? What is his purpose for my life? But how much do we put ourselves in a position to inquire of the Lord and wait for him with certain expectancy of his response. So I went back to the beginning, and that's where we're going to start tonight. I'm still digging out the jewels of this, uh, of the word of God in this. So unless he tells me otherwise, we're going to continue on Sunday. Um, we're not going to get to the bottom of all of this, well, probably till eternity, but we're going we're gonna to get started tonight, and then we're going to keep going. And when I say we're going back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. So let's look at how God started this whole human race and this, all of this, right? So I'm going to skip through a few of these. Verses 1 through 5 tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. Verses 6 through 8 is day 2. And God said, let there be space between the waters to separate the heavens from the waters of the earth, so the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. God called the space sky, and evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. But in day three, God started doing something unique. He said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land and the waters seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, 
every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And this is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants, and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind, and God saw that it was good, and evening passed, and morning came, marking the third day. We see here that on day three, God put into vegetation the ability to replicate itself. In essence, they were given the ability to do what up until this moment only God could do, and that was create life. Amen? Verse 14 begins day four. Then God said, let the lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. He put the stars in the sky. He put the sun in the sky. He put the moon in the sky so that we had light during the day. We had light at night and uh, light to govern the day, light to govern the night. And he said it was good. And evening passed and morning came marking the fourth day. Then God said, verse 20, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill all the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fifth day. On day five, God went a step further with his creation. First, he made them not to simply grow seeds that would fall to the earth and grow, but he put into them the ability to produce offspring just like themselves. In the same way, well, we'll see what God does the next day. Then he spoke to them. Then God spoke to them, telling the fish of the sea and the birds of the air to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. With each day, it seems, God was imparting more of himself into his creation. And on the sixth day, God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings. Let us make man in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. 
And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he made and saw that it was very good. The late Bob Ross became famous by teaching people to paint beautiful landscapes on his TV show, The Joy of Painting, which was usually, I think, broadcast on PBS. I remember watching him as he effortlessly created mountains and trees, brooks and clouds on canvas. He would create as he went along. He'd say, "Mm, I think I'll put a happy little tree here and that kind of thing. But as he painted the picture, it's almost as if it was as he painted, he was deciding what to put where to finish his painting. Unlike Bob Ross, God's artistry was determined before it began. It was in his mind, so to speak. He knew it all. He saw it all. And when he spoke it, it came into being. He knew the world before he spoke those first creative words. He knew who would occupy the earth and what we would need to sustain life. He knew he would walk with man in the cool of the evening and talk with him. He custom designed the planet man would call his home to not only meet his every need, but also to please his senses. I mean, Can you imagine the beauty of earth, fresh and new, with no decay? He knew that one day the enemy would undermine God's authority to man. And though his desire for man was that Adam would silence the serpent and not allow him to malign God, he also knew man would fall and sin. He knew this even before he breathed life into Adam's nostrils. And still he created man in his image and likeness to be like God. And he made a way for us to be rescued from death before man ever knew what death meant. He made us like himself so that we could know him, so we could love him. And have fellowship with him. God's love is so vast that it needed an outlet. His love so great that he gave. He gave us our place. He gave us our life. He gave us forgiveness. And he gave us redemption. He did everything for us to be united with him forever. And all he asked us to do was to choose him. Why did we go all the way back to to creation? Because it was evident from the start that everything God did was intentional and purposeful. Amen? Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6, tells us, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. He made us 
accepted before we were ever born. Amen? Jesus said in John 17, 24, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. God made us in his image and likeness. What does that mean? God is holy. First in Leviticus 11.44 and later in 1 Peter 1.16, God tells us, be holy because I am holy. Being holy, though, must be more than something we do or a set of behaviors we establish for our lives. Holiness is integral to our identity. I am like my Father, who is holy. Therefore, I am holy. It is who I am. I can't just try to be holy, because in my flesh it would be impossible. But in his presence, I will become aware of the holiness that resides in me, that comes from the Father. God is love. Romans 5, 5 reminds us that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given unto us. Everywhere we go, we carry the love of God within us to impact the world around us. When we walk into chaos, we bring the love of God. There is no effort on our part to do this. It's in there. Do you remember the commercial for Prego sauce? It's in there, right? We don't have to think about it. We don't have to do anything to make it happen. The love of God has already been shed abroad in our hearts. The Holy Spirit put it in there. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. That came from Psalm 103.8. And in his presence, I become conscious of his immense love in me. I learn how very much he loves me, how much he loves the world, and only in his presence can he grow in me his love for others. All the attributes of God are described in his word, and those attributes are in us as a part of who we are. We must begin to see ourselves as God sees us and be the people he created us to be. Recently, forgive me, recently, when Shannon brought us a Wednesday night Bible study, she shared a verse that I'd heard hundreds of times before, but for the first time, I saw what it was saying, and it lodged deep inside. Colossians 2.10 says that I am complete in him. Complete. Nothing missing. When I look at myself, I see the broken parts or the wrinkly parts. When God looks at me, he sees me in Christ, and as far as he's concerned, I'm complete. I am exactly who I am supposed to be and who he designed me to be. And I promise you, I am still wrapping my head around that one. Micah 6.8 asks, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with your God. So for just a minute, I'm going to put back on the English teacher cap that I took off at the end of May. To act justly. The word just is an adjective that means based on or behaving according to what is morally right and fair. How do we know what is morally right and fair? <clears throat> Excuse me. Philippians 4.8 tells us what we, that uh, tells us what to focus our thoughts on. And since what we do is a direct result of what we think about, we can say that this verse gives us the definition of what is morally right and fair. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. To act justly requires setting aside selfish thoughts and desires and a personal belief system if it is contrary to what God says is right and just. We must align ourselves with him in thought and action. To love mercy. Mercy is a noun that means compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. We talked at length recently about mercy over judgment. James 2.13 reads, mercy triumphs over judgment. Used in this context, triumph is a verb, an action word, and it means to achieve a victory or be successful. And if it's true that mercy triumphs over or is victorious over judgment, that would imply some type of struggle or competition. We will be tempted to cast judgment every single day. But every time we can and must choose to love mercy and to walk in mercy. This requires meekness on our parts. And meekness is essentially an attitude or quality of heart whereby a person is willing to accept and submit without, without resistance, excuse me, to the will and desire of someone else. And for Christians, that someone else is God. And to walk humbly with our God. Humbly is an adverb here. It's a word that modifies a verb, specifically the way we are to walk with God. The dictionary definition of the word humility states, in a way that shows or suggests a modest or low estimate of one's importance, meekly, in a lowly position or condition, unpretentiously. Humility in the Bible is presented as the practice of meekness, obedience to God, respect of self and others, submissiveness, and modesty. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 tells us, there's your Colossians. Wait, you wanted Colossians tonight. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you. So you also must do. People with humility put others' needs before their own, sacrificing for the love of others.
We are living in a day and age when our need for God has never been greater. We are living in the days spoken of throughout the ages. We are seeing wars and rumors of wars. We are seeing earthquakes in diverse places. We are living in perilous times when men are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents and all authority, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And 2 Timothy 3.5 ends with this admonition, and from such people turn away. But turning away is the first step. It must be followed by turning toward God. We must learn again, or for the first time, how to inquire of the Lord. We should spend so much time in his presence meditating on who he is that we begin to see who he is expressed through our lives. If I'm not familiar with his thoughts and his voice, how can I respond when in the midst of the noise and chaos around me, he tells me to pray for someone or to talk to someone or to help someone? How can I hear him if he wants to get me out of the way of danger if I'm not listening for him? David was familiar with God's creation of the world. He knew that he was of the chosen race of people whom God called the apple of his eye. David knew that God loved him and would fight for him. David knew that his only true source of hope in this world was God. He praised him for who he was and all he created. He worshipped God in humility. He knew that no matter how bad circumstances appeared, God would be there for him when David turned to inquire of the Lord. And God will be there waiting for us when we turn toward him and inquire of the Lord. He has our answer ready before we ever ask the question. Now more than ever, our identity must be our oneness with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are his. We are not our own. We are here to reflect him and his love within our worlds. We won't be able to do that without drawing close to him and inquiring of the Lord every day, all the time, in every circumstance.